welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we're going to turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, this is going to be a long passage today, longer than I normally like to cover in one sitting, but I think you'll see why. I was telling Anthony Alberino before uh, service that, uh, boy, with all the sayings on the cross, all that Jesus spoke and those who confronted Jesus, you could do a whole series on this. You do a whole summer series just on those things that were said at the cross, Um, yet uh, today we're going to cover... Uh, verses 23 through 33, quite a large section of Scripture. Titled this one, A Little Foolishness. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us! Save yourself! But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what was happening, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied Jesus from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. This is the entire crucifixion scene as recorded in Luke. Uh, It may have come to your attention that there was something noticeably missing. Something noticeably missing here. Here's a hint. You may remember from last week that previous to Jesus being led away, uh, 
on the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows, prior to Christ being led away, Luke did not immediately there record the scourging of Christ. Similarly, no attention is given in this passage to the gruesome process of the crucifixion. There is no focus given to the nails driven through his hands and feet. No details are provided to the amount of blood that gushed out or the, just the dreadful condition of his body. You know, th- this surprises me. This surprises me. Uh, I became fascinated to discover the same is true in the Gospel of John. There in chapter 19, nothing is said by John about the injuries sustained until a soldier pierces Jesus' side with a spear, and that is after Jesus has already expired. Um, Folks, this is quite a striking contrast to what is normally uh, depicted in the movies, right? Especially you think about the Passion of the Christ film. That movie attempts to provide, uh, maybe even add, uh, extraordinary uh, detail to the scourging and the punishment that Christ endured. Uh, but this gospel writer, named Luke, he, he doesn't supply such detail. He, he simply records that they crucified him. Of course, we know from last week as we talked about the scourging of Christ, th- this doesn't imply that, that Jesus did not uh, suffer immensely. He did. He suffered immensely. The Gentile audience to whom Luke originally writes would surely have been familiar with the horrors of Roman crucifixion. Uh, They would have not needed further explanation to recognize that Jesus experienced great suffering when nailed to the cross. Still, Luke, neither Luke nor John, find this essential to their Gospels in the crucifixion scene. This is astonishing, considering Luke in chapter 1, when he's explaining the purpose of his gospel to Theophilus, a Roman official. He said to Theophilus that he compiled this account, having investigated everything carefully from beginning uh, from the beginning, so that Theophilus may know the exact truth about the things that he had been taught. Similarly, John in his gospel writes near the end in chapter 20, verse 31, quote, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Yet neither find it essential to go into graphic detail about the blood or the gore when calling people to believe in Jesus Christ. In contrast to that approach, you may have seen the Passion of the Christ film, which takes, takes violence and, and, and carnage to the extreme, yet after watching all of that suffering portrayed in that film, a person could still not be saved by watching that movie. Zero attention is given to our sinful separation 
from God and our need for personal repentance. Nobody hears during the Passion of the Christ that uh, God's Son died for the penalty of our sins. Therefore, you can't be saved only watching that. It's one reason that Christian missionaries overseas, they do not use the Passion of the Christ as an evangelistic tool. All that people who don't know Jesus would ask is, why do they keep beating this guy? Because the gospel is not clearly presented. So I, I think it is reasonable for pastors to use some restraint on how graphic we need to get. The, the condition of Christ's body is not a significant focus of, of this gospel. Again, though we know he suffered immensely. Still, when teaching the scene of the crucifixion, preachers often launch into just a comprehensive explanation of how awful Christ was treated, mistreated, uh, making the audience feel immensely guilty about how Jesus suffered. And so it would be appropriate, it's often said, you know, for everybody here just to express how really bad they feel that an innocent man like that uh, died. Doesn't that just make you feel awful? Then express that. Yet we discovered last week that this is exactly what Jesus did not want. He did not want pity from people. He wanted faith. He wasn't desiring an emotional reaction to how badly Jesus was treated. Like the Passion of the Christ film, that message alone, that message by itself, can't save. It can't save. So, therefore, Luke and John don't place enormous focus on it. Well, then we should ask, what does Luke focus on? There are three things that Luke's narrative that we have already seen, that we've previously seen in other weeks, focus, focuses upon again and again. And we will see them repeated again in this passage on the cross. We've been studying this for weeks now, folks. These are essential, according to Luke. Number one, the evidence has been presented that Jesus is God's Son. He is the Christ. He is the heir to the Davidic throne. And He is the King of the Jews. Number one. Number two, He is innocent, innocent, Innocent of all wrongdoing. He's done nothing wrong. Number three, man is guilty, guilty, guilty for rejecting him as Savior. And all three of these conclusions maintained throughout four separate trials we have seen in the previous weeks. are They're on magnificent display now on the cross. At the crucifixion scene. Folks, these are foundational to the gospel. They are foundational. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He he is surely innocent and guiltless. Mankind, meanwhile, is brutally corrupt and guilty of wrongdoing. And then God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. These are the facts of the cross. This is the substitutionary atonement in the cross. Therefore, we do not receive from Luke a a logbook 
you know, documenting every individual injury to Christ, we receive a chronicle or a diary, you might say, of how the diversity of people responded to him, responded to these facts about Jesus. You know, there were many different people who, who followed Jesus on that road that day as he, he went towards Calvary. They accompanied Jesus on the road. Uh, there were the Pharisees. There were other religious postures as well. There were, there were scoffers. There were mockers that went with him, doubters. There were Roman soldiers who escorted him. We know there are two criminals. So along that road, there were probably friends and family to those criminals that were following behind. Of course, there would have been combined with a diversity of Christ followers. So, so it's a mixed bag. A mixed bag on that road to Calvary. And what we find at the foot of the cross, because of that, are various persons responding in a multiple a multiplicity of ways, they're deciding how they are going to respond to this Savior who declares from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. From the first moment He was lifted high upon the cross, Christ displays the divine essence of forgiveness. Of forgiveness. God is willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive all of your sins, even those people who are crucifying His own Son. That is the essence of God. He is forgiving. In His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you. Christ just fulfilled that right here. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you know what made Jesus so attractive to lost sinners? Made him so incredibly attractive. Would you like to know what really set him apart from all of us? Apart from all of us. This is the attractiveness of Jesus. He practiced precisely what he preached. Precisely what he preached. Divine compassion and God's forgiveness. He practiced it. He preached it. This is the gospel of God's grace. This is what we see at the cross. And, and as his disciples, if, if we would only do this, if we'd only do this, live consistent with what we preach and forgive others, assuring them that Christ also, even at the point of the cross, is anxious to forgive if we would assure people this, we'd likely be amazed by the number of people who would be drawn to our Savior. We'd be amazed to it if we would live consistent with what we preach and preach forgiveness. Later, an early disciple of Jesus, an apostle named Peter, would write this in 1 Peter 3, verse 9, Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. Boy, do we see that on display now at the cross? Give a blessing. During Christ's closing act on the cross, He offers sinners a divine blessing from God. A couple caveats, caveats are in order. Christ is not saying that 
they're unaware that they are crucifying an innocent man. It's been announced at multiple trials already, multiple times by Pilate. He's not saying they're not aware he's innocent. doesn't suggest people are naive of the evil in their hearts and thereby guiltless. You know, you know the evil in your heart. I know the evil in my heart. No, Christ merely recognizes that fallen man, fallen man's inability to understand divine truth without the Holy Spirit. Just Fallen man is completely incapable of processing divine truth. For 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 assures, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to, for to us God revealed them through his Spirit. God revealed this gospel to us through his Spirit. The same passage continues. But a natural man, that is... Man in his original born state, Scripture tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. Man in his natural state before spiritual regeneration. That means before spiritual rebirth. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them cannot understand them. Uh, Jesus' persecutors were void of spiritual discernment. They didn't have understanding, for the Holy Spirit of God had not yet revealed Christ to them as he has to us. We are recipients of God's grace. Therefore, Jesus' prayer, as ours should be for others who have not yet understood the gospel, it's, it's empathetic with fallen sinners. It's, it's um, evangelistic. He's asking his Father to forgive even the most heinous act of crucifying his Son on a cross. Most horrific injustice committed against his Son. And, and the Father responds. The Father responds for at least some. For at least some at this scene. That, that is Grace. When God responds, Jesus knows if they receive this divine understanding, they will no longer behave in this way. They won't act in this way once receiving God's grace. Luke records then varied responses, varied, varied responses toward the fact that Jesus is truly the Christ. Think about where you may fall. Think about where you may fall on this. First, we see four soldiers, four soldiers, uh, completely oblivious. Four soldiers, indifferent and oblivious, they could not care less. And, and they cast lots, meaning they gambled. They cast lots, dividing up Jesus' clothing. And we, we often fail to grasp this. But in those days, back, back in those days, they didn't have machines that effortless, effortlessly wove fabric into shirts that they sold in Walmart for $6.99. They didn't get their clothes for next to nothing on a clearance rack, all right? It, wa- it wasn't available. 
weaving fabric. It was slow. It, it was labor-intensive. For that reason, decent clothing, it was hard to come by. It was slow to come by. To spin thread from raw material, to weave and then stitch a complete set of clothing would have taken days. Depend upon how finely the fabric is, is woven, possibly weeks to complete a set of clothing. A set of clothing. Um, the soldiers, when they see these clothes, they, 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 it's kind of like an added bonus. A little, little financial bonus there with their effort. They're going to divide this up amongst them because they know the value. They know the time that it takes to divide this up. But they find his inner tunic, it was one piece, one solid piece. And they see, this is a special piece. We aren't going to divide this fabric up. Here's what we'll do. We'll cast lots and see who gets this nice piece. And they're, they're blinded by their materialism. Blinded by their materialism, and it makes them oblivious to the, the nakedness and the exposure of Christ and the cross. They're worried about the world, and the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They don't understand. They don't see. And dividing up the garments of a dying man, really it ought to prompt them It ought to prompt them to look up and notice that Jesus is departing this world naked with nothing. He's leaving an example there on the cross for all of us and for each of them that you're not taking anything with you. Nothing is going with you. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Don't get to take anything with you. Um, I don't know if any of you have buried parents. Most of us eventually do at some point. I've buried two parents. And I've seen people rummaging through their stuff. Grasping at what they can preserve out of this world. But looking down, naked from the cross, Christ marvels. He marvels at man's preoccupation with the things of this world, the merchandise of this world. Does that describe you? Preoccupied with everything that you have in this world? Are you you constantly rummaging, rummaging through things of this life, just hoping that somehow you can preserve it? Somehow, maybe at the end, you can salvage part of this life. For you, Jesus, praise. For you, Jesus, praise. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. We're not taking anything with us. Next in verse 35, we find there are rulers sneering at Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. See, they still doubt that he's king of the Jews after all the evidence. But now we are told there was also an inscription above him, clear as day, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals also 
who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. In Matthew 27, chief priests and scribes and and elders sneered at him, saying, Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Really? Really? This is their response after four trials. Four trials uh, that provided overwhelming evidence, by the way. We want more evidence. Give us more evidence. They they demand endless evidence. They want more proof. And three times Jesus is prodded then by them. If you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, save yourself. Just establishing they have zero understanding of why he came. Save yourself. Well, if he saved himself, he wouldn't be able to save us. They have no comprehension whatsoever what they're asking. Uh, Mark says that some passing by stop along to say... Let's wait to see if Elijah will come and take him down. Let's wait to see. Um, These are like the ones that you and I approach saying, Jesus is the Christ. He is the King of the Jews. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead again. And their reaction is what? Well, I want more proof. Can you give me some proof? How will you prove it to me? 2,000 years after the fact. 2,000 years after the historical fact, can I prove that God's Son lived a sinless life and died on a cross for sins? Can I prove that? You know, sadly, the modern approach to evangelism, the modern approach to evangelism has often become fashioned around proving to an unregenerated mind, a spiritually dead person, proving to them, beyond a reasonable doubt, again, arguing with a dead person, that God is real, and that Jesus is who He claimed to be in Scripture. Argue with them. Some propose that our goal is to persuade men into accepting that God exists we can just get them there, verifiable through what he created, if we can get them to that point, then add in other irrefutable evidences like the human conscience, the existence of that and other things, uh, if we can just get them there, persuade them with clear evidences of God, uh, we are on our way home. Uh, If we can persuade them with these evidences, I'm going to give a couple examples here, then apparently I should be able to just get them that next short hop to the substitutionary atonement where Christ died for our sins. Just prove God exists. Here's a few examples. Plain human logic must conclude with, with only time, space, and chance the human eye could never evolve. That is true. That is true. Did you guys know that the father of that false religion called evolution, Charles Darwin, the thought of the human eye and the way it functioned made him sick. Made him sick to his stomach. He's the one who wrote the theory. Or initiated the theory. Um, That's just one small argument for intelligent design by God. Human reproduction. 
It, it is so sensitive and, and so precise. It's also so complex that male and female anatomy had to be created at precisely the same time with fully mature sexual organs, or they would be, according to evolution, just de- discarded as useless appendages. I mean, think about it. Think, think about your body now. How many organs do you have? Skin, bone, muscle, tissue, tendons, stomach, lungs, heart. Brain. How many things do you got all over you that you don't use? But apparently the sexual organs existed and matured over many years and at precisely the same time, male and female, then uh, procreated creatures. The, the male and female reproductive organs could not possibly evolve. Couldn't happen. So this is also true. More evidence again. Hope this is helpful, by the way. Third, I'll do one more. If evolution evolution were true, if it were true, the gradual transition from species to species, the, the morphing, should unveil a fossil record containing life forms that gradually changed from one form to another, from one species to another, a gradual advancement of different creatures. But it doesn't. It doesn't. The fossil record only reveals distinct species with, with no morphine of transitional species, transitional life forms between them. They're not in the fossil record. So the animal kingdom had to have been created by God spontaneously, as the Bible tells us. Folks, this is science. This is evidence through science and human reason. But can human reason make the leap from God exists, so therefore His Son must have died for my sins and rose from the dead? Is that just a small leap? Or is that an infinite chasm? It's an infinite chasm chasm the jews had always agreed that god exists these jews surrounding them but they still could not accept jesus christ as their savior so the proposition that if i just prove to people these evidences i just shared which are very reasonable very rational but if i just prove this evidence that god exists that people will then easily receive Christ as Savior. That's false. That is false. Natural revelation. Natural revelation. That's that's what we see around us. Things that God made in nature. Natural revelation is incapable of converting a soul. Incapable. By the way, for scriptural evidence to that, what does Romans chapter 1 assure us or reveal in fallen man's actual response to natural revelation. How does man actually respond to what he sees around him? Does it lead him to acknowledge and worship God rightly? Not hardly. Romans chapter 1 says, God made the truth evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, that means created, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's how they respond to that. That's how the unsaved man responds to natural revelation. So, So when it comes to evidence, natural evidence, the religious leaders, they, they always wanted just a little more proof. Give me just a little more proof, and then I'll make that gigantic leap across the chasm to trust in Christ. But there's no amount of evidence that can prove, that can prove Jesus to an unregenerated mind. They had witnessed three years of his ministry, three years of mingled with miracles and preaching. Four trials concluded that Jesus is the Christ, that he is innocent of all sin and no guilt. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. We cannot argue spiritually dead people into heaven. They, they cannot understand. It doesn't say they might understand or maybe they could understand or if you say it eloquently to them then perhaps they could understand. It says they cannot understand. They don't need more proof. What they need is spiritual regeneration. As I said earlier, spiritual rebirth. The Spirit needs to change their hearts. How do they receive that? How do they receive that? Well, let's take a look. The first criminal cried, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus, though, did not come to save his life or this life of the criminal. Think of natural life. The angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. That's what he came to save us from is the penalty of sins. And this is what all men and all women actually need. What you need, folks, you need forgiveness. You need forgiveness as I do for sins. That's what every person needs. And verse 40 says the second criminal... The second criminal, after initially mocking Jesus, we see that in, in the Gospel of Matthew, that initially they were both insulting Jesus. But now he finally gets it. Something changed while he was up there on the cross uh, next to Jesus. Something for him changes because he responds to the first criminal saying, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Notice, he says, crucifixion is what they deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boy, there's a lot there. 
There's a lot there. Did this second criminal try to preserve his life? Preserve this life for me, Jesus. Make it better. No, he became an evangelist. He became an evangelist next to Jesus, and he shared what he believed is true about Jesus. He, he told the first criminal, God judges. Do you fear him? God is judge. That's the first thing that he said. And we are sinners, he told him, we are sinners who justly deserve death on a cross. Jesus, he says, is innocent and does not deserve what he is enduring on the cross. And it's likely he could have said to that other criminal, do you see that sign above his head? Do you see what that says? It says, this is Jesus who is the king of the Jews. Evidence is right there. And the criminal would have said something like, therefore I believe that we will be resurrected. I believe that Jesus will rule over a kingdom. He believes God is just. He believes that he is guilty. He believes Jesus is not. He believes there will be a resurrection and that Christ will rule over a kingdom. <laughs> Folks, that's not, that's not a bad summary of the gospel. Not bad at all. He doesn't require further evidence. Didn't have to see Jesus get down off the cross. Didn't need to know anything more. He didn't ask Jesus to save his life. All the criminal did was confess with his mouth what he knew about Christ, and he preached the gospel to the other criminal. Preached the gospel to him. His declaration, God is judge, we have sinned and deserve to die. Jesus has not sinned and does not deserve to die, and we're all going to be resurrected one day. His declaration is the essence of the substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. What is that? It says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. The first criminal could have told the second, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But God has caused our iniquity to fall on him. And Christ's supernatural, divine substitution, that is the substance of the cross. That is the substitutionary atonement. And Jesus replied to the criminal, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That man was saved. That man was saved. Still, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross, that word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Now, this all happened 2,000 years ago. Can I prove Jesus is God's Son? Can I prove He took my sin upon His body? Do I possess empirical, empirical evidence? That's visual, scientific 
evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Nope. Nope. Why then do I believe? That foolishness is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. In the past, you know, we, we, people ask from time to time, as pastors, Jerry and I hear it, so what do you preach at that church? Sometimes uh, we'll say, you know, we preach Christ, we preach the Bible. You know what I think I'm going to start telling people? I preach foolishness. <laughs> I preach foolishness. Why not? Scripture says it's true. To the unregenerated heart, it's foolishness. What's that? They'll swarm in for foolishness. Uh, Scripture says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased. Get that. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God's well pleased with foolishness. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. I don't have to argue with people anymore. I don't have to prove anything through empirical evidence. Nor could I if they demanded. I'm not afraid to preach the foolishness of the gospel. The foolishness of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is good news. That's power. That people would believe foolishness. That is power. You know, churches spend a lot of time in this. And it's, I'll say it's important for us to be able to answer rational questions, all right? That's important to be able to talk about things like evolution in the eye and reasonable arguments. Not, Not demeaning that at all. But churches ought to think about not grooming people to debate. Not grooming them to debate and rely on a persuasive argument. They ought to go out like this criminal did. We all ought to do this. We ought to go out preaching foolishness. Preaching foolishness of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Why don't we do that? We don't believe in the power of God. We're unwilling to preach foolishness. We'd rather win an argument than preach foolishness. I, I'm, I'm convicted by this. The power of God is foolishness. The only way anyone is ever going to believe such foolishness is by the power of God. Scripture says He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, evangelism is a process of preaching foolishness, not winning every argument. In verse 44, in verse 44, we see when it was about the sixth hour, that's noon, About the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's three. So between 
noon and three. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. means it was rent. It was torn in half. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Breathed his last. Passover, it always falls on a full moon. And no eclipse lasts three hours, folks. This was not an eclipse. We don't have to explain this other than God at this time allowed darkness to prevail over the earth. Darkness prevailed over that land. Uh, At this time, verse 45, also, this is really important. We're almost done. This is really important. At this time, it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Matthew 27, verse 51 assures that that this this was the massive veil. That that big curtain that that, that separated... The Holy of Holies, the innermost portion of the temple from the rest of the temple and from the people. Only the priest, the high priest, could go in there and make atonement for sins. Um, Matthew assures that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Top to bottom. At the very moment Jesus breathed his last, yielding up his spirit. And at that time, Matthew records that the earth shook, rocks split, tombs were opened. And by the way, for the first recipients of these Gospels, the first recipients that read this, this stuff was recent history, okay? Within 20 or 30 years, uh, these Gospels were written. And if these mysterious phenomena, these happenings in Jerusalem, had not occurred about 30 A.D. when Jesus died, had they not occurred, the Gospels would have been immediately rejected as in error. They would have been rejected as historically inaccurate because remember, the the whole nation at this time was gathered for Passover in Jerusalem. Everybody was there. Millions of people were there for the feast and Jews would have either remembered what had happened on this day or they would have heard their parents describe, remember that Passover? When the sky was darkened and earthquakes happened and, and the veil to the temple was rent top to bottom, exposing everything? They would have known. The Gospels would not have been received if this was not accurate. This is accurate. This is historical fact. But here's my question. Was access to God the moment that Christ died, was that access to God opened in that stone temple? Which veil to which temple, which veil was rent offering access to God? Where do we access God? There is no no longer access to God in the temple. In that stone temple, Hebrews 10 verse 12 says, Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us 
through the veil that is his flesh. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 20. Hebrews says that we enter the holy of holies, that is the dwelling of God, via entering through the veil that is his flesh. Think about that. What is the new and living way which we enter God's presence by the blood and through his flesh? Here's a hint. Would have been a great Sunday for communion this Sunday. Would have been a great Sunday for that. What would we enter if we passed through the veil, or curtain, if we passed through the veil of Christ's flesh? What would we enter? His body. His church. Entering Christ's body is God's new and living way. His new and living holy place into which we are immersed. We're all baptized by one spirit into his body. Through faith we pass through the veil of his flesh into his body because the veil was rent. Hebrews 20 verse 10 indicates we together, the people of God, become the holy of holies. We are the dwelling of God. Therefore, same chapter, just five verses later says, we do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. We are the dwelling place of God. And entry to Christ's body is, folks, that is what verse 45 truly signifies when it says that Christ died and the veil of God's temple was rent. It was opening access to the Father through the Son, through the body of Christ. Finally, at the ninth hour, Jesus breathed his last. He he cried out. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 46. He cried out with, with a loud voice. I'll try to do my best here. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I'm glad they translated it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, Jesus, I know a lot of people have wondered about this over time. I did growing up, and unfortunately the church that I was in couldn't give an answer. But Jesus isn't asking God a question. He isn't asking his Father a question. He wasn't leaving us a riddle to solve. Christ knew precisely why God forsook him. The answer is us who believe. That's why God forsook him. And the answer is, Jesus was again like he did through his entire ministry. At the last moments on the cross, he was again quoting scripture. That's what he did all the time. We could learn from him. And Jews within earshot of the cross would have recognized, as we still should today, that Jesus is quoting the first line of King David's psalm, a messianic psalm, 22. That's what Jesus is doing there. He's quoting Psalm 22. First line of it. And Jews at the foot of the cross, better than us, could have probably quoted David from memory. Here's what David wrote. For dogs have surrounded me. 
A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was not questioning the Father. He was not expressing regret for taking our sins upon him. That is the whole reason that Christ came. With his last breaths, Jesus was guiding people, saying, go read Psalm 22 and read what David is saying about me. That's what he is telling people to do. See what David said about me. Every Jew there should have been able to pick up on that. Hey, he's quoting Psalm 22. Maybe somebody should look into that. The same is true when he says, Into your hands I commend my spirit. That's Psalm uh, 31. Psalm 31, uh, which, which says, by the way, You have ransomed me. Into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have ransomed me. That's something. Pointing them to Scripture again and again. Then in John 19, verse 30, Jesus cried out, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. At that moment, one more gets saved. We've got one more. That much scripture left here. That much left here. One more gets saved. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. Think about that. Saying, certainly this man was innocent. Was this centurion saved? Think about it. He praised God that an innocent man had been crucified. How could that statement make any sense unless the centurion came to understand that Jesus died to save others? How could a man praise God that an innocent person was crucified? Uh, I think he might have heard that criminal number two preaching to criminal number one. In fact, I think it is possible that many who surrounded the cross on that day heard the preaching of that second criminal. Very possible. Anyone who was there guarding the cross or showing empathy for Christ probably would have heard him as he shouted out across Jesus who was in the middle, shouted out to the other criminal on the other side. People would have heard it. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied Jesus from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. I bet a whole bunch of people got saved on that day. There's a diversity of people. When they heard an innocent king had been crucified, that an innocent king of the Jews had been crucified for them. Folks, evangelism, it's that simple. It is that simple. We don't have to get fancy. We don't have to know the answer to every question they're going to have. Uh, all we need to do is say, I am, I'm a sinner who's guilty, and Christ is the Son of God who is innocent, and He died for my sins. Evangelism is that simple. Will you try it? Will we try it?
Just tell people you're guilty and Christ died on the sins and rose again. Folks, we need to put our confidence in a little foolishness. A little foolishness. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for exchanging foolishness in the cross, for having placed our confidence in rational arguments by men, persuasive arguments, having not believed in the power of the gospel. Forgive us. Make us so spiritually wise that we will never again commit such a grievous sin. For you've told us in your word again and again, preaching the gospel is your will and your way. Father, by your spirit, teach us to walk in it. Amen. How about a blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and show you his grace. Amen. Amen.